0: To, to turn in it to uh, Acts chapter 1. Into that second part of Acts chapter 1. Now I, I've said repeatedly over the, the last number of months that we've said it time and time again that one, one of the things I find absolutely uh, thrilling about London City Presbyterian Church is the fact uh, that we are sort of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, diverse congregation, you know, because Our congregation is gathered from, from so many different countries. What happens is that we get the joy of hearing what church is like in parts of the world where God is working in dramatic ways. You know, we get to hear about what church is like in in parts of South America or or parts of Southeast Asia where God's working to, to save people almost daily. That's a joy, right? And it's a blessing. But it also makes us think, doesn't it? You know, it's fine to hear about what the church is like in other parts of the world, but what about here? You know, what about in the United Kingdom, in a land that isn't seeing God's saving hand in a similar sort of way? How, how do we act in that circumstance? You know, how does, how, how does a, a church like ours, how do we behave? what do we do, what should we be doing in the life of the congregation? Well, this portion of scripture that we're looking at today deals with exactly that. Because what we've got here in front of you in Acts chapter 1 is a small church. okay, And it is a small church waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in power. And what we'll see is that this church here they didn't just chill out they didn't just sit around waiting no instead as they sort of anticipate the blessing of the Holy Spirit what they do is they engage in crucial work of the church so that's the sort of thing that we're going to be considering this morning and shock horror we will not have the sort of traditional three or four point sermon This morning. Because you see, as the church in Acts 1, as they wait for the Holy Spirit, what they do is two things. So that's how we're going to approach the text. Our sermon this morning is going to be divided into two. Just think of it like that, okay? We're going to have two main points, each with three subheadings. So think of it like that. Two main points, that's it. Just with three subheadings to each. Okay, so let's make a start. What did the church here do as it waited for the Holy Spirit? What did it do? The first thing, our first main point. As this church waited, they prayed. So the church waited, they prayed. Now... uh, if I was to ask you the question I often ask, do you remember what we saw during the service last week? Do you remember what we saw during the sermon? I fear that some of you would say, yes, Andy, I remember exactly what we saw during the sermon last week. We saw a mouse. <laughs> and we saw a mouse running in front of the preacher all the way through the sermon. But that is, of course, not what I would mean. Do you remember what we saw in the passage of Scripture last week? Do you remember? And we saw that, When Jesus Christ appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, what happened? He gave his disciples a command, a command to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember that? That was a bulk of what we looked at last week. But what we see happening next today is that after they get this command from Jesus... The disciples meet together for prayer. Okay, so they've got this command from Jesus. Next thing, they meet together for prayer. And we're told three things about how they prayed. Three things about how the disciples prayed. Ready for them? One, we see that they prayed immediately. They prayed immediately. I'm sure you picked up on this. Jesus tells them to go back to Jerusalem. What do they do? They've had this command from Jesus. What do they do? Tells them to go back. They're obedient. They go straight back into Jerusalem. But what else? If your Bibles are open, verse 13 tells us, they arrived back into Jerusalem. Then they went upstairs to this room. Then we're given a list of of the disciples, the, the, the people who were present and then we're told they arrive back from Jerusalem, they go up the stairs, and in verse fourteen they prayed. Do you see what we've got? They've been given new instructions. They've been given this new command. They've been given this new task. What do they do? bang on immediately instantaneously there's this sense of right okay Jesus has told us to do something what will we do we'll bow we'll get to our knees let's commit this to God let's cover this entirely in prayer what we see is that before anything else was even contemplated the first thing the New Testament church did was pray the first thing they did, was pray. And I would love to just now pick up the microphone and go around the congregation and ask you what your New Year's resolutions were. Okay, I'd love to find out what they were. And I would love to find out whether you've kept them. But also whether prayer featured amongst them. Did prayer feature in your new year 's resolutions, because you see what we find when we consider this church in acts one that 's waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit, what we find is that prayer was number one. Prayer was the most important thing to these people. So this year, this congregation, what do we do? We wait, yeah okay, we wait for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but we wait. And we pray. The church here prayed immediately. It prayed immediately. Now it's surely true that a lack of purpose, a lack of purpose is a plague that is affecting the 21st century Western world, isn't it? You know the idea of a lack of purpose. You know it's, it's true, isn't it? That, that very often we struggle to work out what our role in life is. You know that's the case at work, isn't it? Maybe when we're getting a wee bit older, you know what 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 what's our role at work? And it's true in the home sometimes too. Perhaps when the, when the kids have grown up and they've flown the nest, what's our role? But it's also even the case sometimes. In the life of the church. What is our role. In the congregation. Well in Acts 1. We see how that can be countered. Because we've seen that they pray immediately. But also here they pray corporately. That's our second subpoint here. They pray corporately. See verse 14 tells us something really important. Get this. Okay. It tells us that the whole church. Got together. It tells us that. 120 people. All 120 people. He tells us that everyone gathered together for prayer. Now this prayer meeting that you've got in front of you in in these verses here, that it wasn't just the preserve of the people who had been the Christians longest. Okay? This prayer meeting wasn't just about sort of certain praying stalwarts. It wasn't about just the people who have got free time on their hands. This prayer meeting here, it involved the students. And it involved the young people. And it involved the old people too. And it involved the the, the parents. It involved the leadership of the church. Everyone, everyone was involved in prayer here. And did you see it? There's this kind of sort of wonderful sense of harmony about it as well. They all bonded as they bowed. Look, the the ESV says about it, it says that the church gathered here in one accord. You see, there's a sense of unity, love and unity. They all got together to pray. And that's great, okay? That's fine. fine. But instead, what I'd like to draw your attention to is a specific group within the congregation, that's mentioned here and highlighted. Okay. And do you see it? It says that the church all prayed, but specific mention is made of the women gathering for prayer. It says, verse 14, so they all they all get together, they all join together for prayer, along with the women. And so with that, friends, Please allow me to, to particularly address this morning the women of the church. The women who are gathered here in this room. Because you see, we can all wrestle with our role in life. You know, we can all struggle with the, the, the purpose that we have. And I think possibly that is perhaps especially true for women within a Presbyterian church, Right? But what we see here is that, from the very beginning, the women of the New Testament church were intrinsically involved in the prayer life of the congregation. From the very beginning of the New Testament church, the women were intrinsically involved in praying in the prayer life of the congregation. Like, like uh, women of the twenty-first century, they'd have had commitments and responsibilities. They'd have had families and kids and and work and jobs to do. But at the same time, because of its fundamental importance, the women met with the rest of the church for prayer. Now, does that not make us think? I mean, all of us here, does that not make us think? You know, we make time for other things in our life. We make time So perhaps it is time that we make time to pray and to pray together. This church here prayed immediately and it prayed corporately. Third one, the church also prayed relentlessly, okay? It prayed relentlessly. Now, I became a Christian. I was converted in my early 20s. I was 20 years old. And I remember uh, to this day the first bit of advice that I got uh, upon my conversion. And this lovely Christian woman came to speak to me. and, And she told me, she said, Andy, see when it comes to prayer, what you do is you pray once and then you forget about it. Whatever it is in your heart. You take that to God in prayer, you pray about it once, and then you leave it with him. That was the advice I got. And what I know now, what I didn't know then, is that's pretty rubbish advice. Because you see, that's not what scripture tells us, is it? I mean, scripture teaches us that God wants his people to um, wrestle with him in prayer. That God wants his people to come to him repeatedly and tell him what is on our hearts. And... We get an example of that in Acts chapter 1, don't we? Because, look, verse 14. How did they pray? Verse 14. We've seen this immediately, and we've seen they got together, but look at the word that's used. They joined together, what's the word? Constantly. In prayer. Get it? Constantly. Like the verb in the Hebrew it has got that sort of sense of a, 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 a perseverance in prayer. You know? A sort of persistence a, a diligence in prayer so, so what we've got is a group of people that is not to sort of go to God half heartedly and, and pray once and, and leave it at that here the New Testament church they're going back they're praying and they're praying and they're praying and they're bringing the promise that God has made them about the Holy Spirit back up to him in prayer Friends, surely we see that the same has got to be—it's got to be the same with us, doesn't it? If anything, that this church has got to be earnest in prayer. You know, that on a Thursday evening, you know, yeah, we should be sort of gathering together in great numbers, but we should also be gathering together in great urgency. You know, bringing to God his promises from Scripture. Praying the same prayer that these people in Acts were praying. Praying that God would pour out his Holy Spirit and power amongst our congregation. So here's the question. Do we do that? I mean, is that really how we're doing things? Are we gathering in great numbers and with great urgency calling on God? Do we do that as a church? And if not, will we do that as a church? What a joy it would be if um, our prayer meeting flourished in the year that that lies ahead. Why? Why is that important? Because in Acts chapter 1, the church waited, friends. They waited and they prayed. So I said there would be uh, two points. So we've seen this first idea that this church waited for the Holy Spirit, the gift that had been promised. And as they did that, they they prayed. There's a second thing, there's a a major, we move on the second big uh, heading here. Because know also that as they waited, they appointed a replacement apostle. They appointed a replacement apostle. And the first thing to, to think about here is the, the need to do that, the necessity of a replacement. Now, I, I was on the phone to a, a mate, a friend, recently, and he was telling me at the time that he had been um, invited to a wedding meal. So he gets the invitation through, and he's a bit surprised, Okay. And he's chuffed to get the invite to the wedding meal, but he's a bit surprised, you know. Uh, but anyway, it gets to the day. So what what happens is that he does as you do, and he gets his suit on. And he's looking sharp, you know. He gets he's looking business. And he gets to the hotel and he goes into the hotel, and then he goes up to the dining room. And you know, there's that seating plan. It's always outside uh, the dining room at a wedding. So he goes up to this seating plan and he starts having a look and he looks at the list and then it hits him and he realises that he has misread the invitation that he has received and actually he is not invited to the wedding meal and I think the poor guy felt a bit foolish with all these other wedding guests around him as he turned and walked out of the hotel. Well here in Acts what have you got? You've got a list and it is a list with an obvious name missing from it, don't you? Because, look, we're given in verse 13 the list of the apostles, but of course, the name of Judas is absent from this list. And what we've got here in this sort of parenthesis here is that Luke tells us what became of Judas. He tells us, isn't it an incredible thing, isn't it? He tells us that one of the twelve apostles he tells us that that Judas betrayed Jesus. That he defected, defected. He bought a field, hung himself, and he fell to the ground. And then this sort of the remainder of the chapter deals with the search that takes place for a replacement for Judas. The search for a replacement for Judas, and we'll get to that. Before we do that, let me ask you a question. Question. Why? Why did there need to be a replacement? I mean, why couldn't they just carry on this church with eleven apostles? You see it? Why did there have, why did they have to replace Judas? Why did there have to be twelve? Two reasons to think. One is to show the sort of continuity in the church between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, God's people were who? They were the people of Israel, weren't they? They were the 12 tribes of Judah. Well, here, to show the sort of continuity of the church, we see that there had to be 12 apostles. There had to be 12 guys. 12 men to do what? To take the gospel to where? To, at this point, to Jerusalem and to Judea and all Samaria. There had to be 12 apostles to take the gospel to all Israel. So that's part of it. But the other reason is much more explicit in the text. Because in Peter's speech he makes here, he gets up in front of the 120 people. What he says is that both Judas's Betrayal and the need for a replacement for Judas were prophesied in scripture. That's what he says, isn't it? I mean, he, he quotes Psalm 41, then he quotes that Psalm we just sung, Psalm 109, and he says that these show us that God has spoken in advance about what would happen with Judas. So this second reason that there had to be 12, that there had to be a replacement, was because God had commanded it in Scripture. Now that's, that's great, isn't it? I mean, that's that's informative for us, that is helpful. Why? Because we see here, again, in advance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see a church... That was determined to think biblically. Don't we? They waited for the Holy Spirit, but they were determined to act in light of scriptural teaching. So there was this need that was absolutely necessary to replace Judas. Okay, second thing here, think about the qualifications for the job. We've seen that there's a need for an apostle. What about the qualifications for that job, alright? Now what do you think? Has there ever been a congregation like ours before? Has there ever been a congregation that has seen so many people over the years looking for work? I suppose it comes with us being in the the centre of London. I'm pretty sure that most of us over the past few months have kind of Found ourselves online or with a newspaper, and we're poring over job specifications or job adverts, either for ourselves or for somebody we know. Well, it's that sort of idea that we've got here, isn't it? Because we see that a twelfth apostle was needed, but what's the job spec of the apostle? I mean what's the job profile? What, what qualified a person to be an apostle? Think a couple of things. We're told in verse 21 that the ideal candidate for apostleship would be somebody who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry. You know, somebody who had followed him since the time of, of John's baptism. That's part of it. But, if anything, it's the other qualification that's more important, because we're told in verse 22 that the apostle, the candidate, do you see it? He had to have witnessed with his own eyes what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see, friends, that is just so informative for us. What we've got there is just so essential and foundational, isn't it? Because you see, what we've got here is the reality that the resurrection was everything to the New Testament church. The resurrection was absolutely Everything to the New Testament church. They're asking, who can lead us? Who can be a, an apostle? Only one who has seen the risen Lord. Who can lead us? Who can be an apostle? Only one who can actually testify to you. Have seen the bodily resurrection. The resurrection was everything to the New Testament church. And really we see in that the truth that, that without the resurrection of Christ, guess what? There ain't no Christianity. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. See, there's, there's, there's lots of people, many people. People, some of them, who would be professing Christians, and they would say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just a picture. Okay? The, the, the resurrection of Christ is, is you know, it's, this resurrection is it's a metaphor. A metaphor perhaps for, you know, the idea that, you know, to truly enjoy and flourish in life that you have to go through a period of trial and trouble. That it's a metaphor. Well, you see, to these people in Acts chapter 1, that would be Insanity. I mean, to these people in Acts chapter 1, that would be absolutely nonsensical. You see, to them, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that meant everything. Jesus Christ was, was raised from the dead. And so, the very organization of the church was based around that fact. Jesus Christ is raised. So ask yourself just now, do you believe that? Do you? Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? So we've seen that there was a need to appoint a twelfth apostle. There had to be twelve. And then we've seen that that apostle had to have witnessed the resurrection. But we close with this. The method that they use to choose. The method now, I know that some of you are fans of the West Wing. Uh okay? US political drama, the West Wing. And I can confess to you having watched an episode of it this week. And if you know them well, it was the one where uh, the White House staff, they're appointing an associate judge to the US Supreme Court. Okay, For What they do, the White House staff, they get together... And they whittle down all the options. They go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of candidates. And then when they've done that, what they do is they go through to the boss, you know, they take their couple of recommendations through to the boss, to President Bartlett, and he makes the call. Well it's something similar we've got here, isn't it? Because when faced with a vacancy for an apostle, what the church does they get together these 120 people, they whittle down the options and they whittle it down to two men. Did you see that? You've got Joseph, who had a lot of names, but we'll call him Joseph, and Matthias. Now, what do they do after that? They whittle down the names. Don't please get caught up on the fact that they cast lots, please. This is before they had the Holy Spirit. So They didn't have the Holy Spirit for guidance. So they cast lots. But what do they do? They whittle all the names down. Then what? Then they take those names through to the boss. They take the names to God in prayer. So we end with this. Are you struggling to know God's will in your life? Generally speaking. Well, what we see here is that it comes from thinking biblically of looking to Scripture, but also it comes from sincere, submissive prayer. But more specifically, think about this. As a congregation, we are looking to appoint leaders, new leaders in the coming month. And I know what you're going to say. I know that the job of an apostle is different to the job of an elder. But what we've got to take away from from these verses that we're seeing here is that the prayer that was ushered in Acts chapter 1 should be the prayer that echoes around this building, that echoes around your homes. Because in Acts 1, the church are looking for guidance from God about leadership. So what do they pray? Do you see it in verse 24? They pray a God who knows the hearts of people, and they pray, show us, Lord. Will you show us, Lord, who you have chosen? So, friends, when we are faced with that similar situation, when we are faced with this, this decision about leadership and our congregation, our prayer has got to be the same prayer. You should be praying. We should be praying. Show us, Lord. Show us the man or men of your choosing. So, friends, we've seen today that as the waited for the Holy Spirit. The church in Acts chapter 1 was a spiritually active congregation. Let's follow suit. Let's, as a congregation, get praying. Let's get praying. Let's get organized for mission. And let's also seek the will of God. Let's pray.